I want to thank you guys for coming out and being with us outside as it is anyways. We, we love you guys, and it's just so important for God's people to gather. Amen? And so I wanted to, just a couple of announcements before we get into today's study. You may have heard of uh, Pastor John MacArthur down in, in L.A. and the legal battle that's been going on with his church and um, California saying that churches cannot meet. So they had determined that they were going to oppose that. And he's got a church of about 7,000 people, and they have been meeting anyways. And people keep coming to me and saying, hey, haven't you heard that um, the court ruled in MacArthur's favor and church can, can meet now. And uh, that was true for just a moment, and it was true only for his church there in L.A. But uh, last, uh, I think it was about oh, a little over a week ago, they ruled in his favor, and then that Saturday they reversed the ruling and said churches cannot meet, his church cannot meet, and they met anyways. And so then they tried to get him with a contempt order and uh, fine him $20,000. And then the court said, well, there was never a court order in the first place. So the cont contempt thing is not going to work. So now they're trying again. So <clears throat> his church is going back to court for the fourth time tomorrow. And so just all that to say that there is still not a precedent saying that churches can meet inside. Um, having said that, Napa was taken off the, the watch list, the, the county watch list, a couple of days ago. And so, Lord willing, over the next week or two, if things keep going in the right direction, I think we'll have the ability to meet inside again. Uh, but, but as far as I'm concerned, I, I just don't want to go back to online-only services again. Whether we meet outdoors or indoors, it's important to me that we meet in person together. And as long as we can meet outside... Sure, go ahead. As long as we can meet outside, I want to keep doing that because there are a number of people who don't feel comfortable coming back in the building yet, and I, I understand that. And so I want us to be able to gather outside where people feel more comfortable. But there's going to come a point when we just can't. It's going to be dark at, on Wednesday night, cold. It's going to be raining a lot, um, Lord willing. And, you know, Sunday mornings, it just... We won't be able to do this, and so I'm I'm feeling pretty adamant, and the, the elders are too, that we're gonna we're gonna meet. It's just as simple as it is, and there's just a lot that goes into that, more than you could know. And so please just be gracious towards us, pray for us for wisdom, and uh, and time to to do this the right way, and and to go about it um, in 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 an orderly fashion, so we can be confident in uh, in the decisions that we make. Sound good? So I'm just glad that we can be together today. I'm glad that we are here in person. And I wanted to say, um, side note, regarding the, the women's ministry, this coming week, as I understand it, is the last study for the series that the women have been doing for the last several months. And there's going to be a four-week break, and then they will be starting up again. And so my wife, Jessica Rainey, is the women's ministry leader. Would you raise your hand? For anybody who has not met Jess, I know she would love to meet you. There will be more de uh, details to come about what's, what the next study will be and when and, and all that good stuff. And in the meantime, we're going to be posting each week a devotional that Jess will be doing on women from history, women that God has used in a significant way. And we'll be putting that on the website, on Instagram, Facebook. And so we definitely want all you ladies to, to see that and be blessed by it. So we're excited that she is doing that. So be looking out for that. And then uh, one more thing, a very important thing before we get into our word today is we need to pray. We need to pray for our community, for our, our country, and we need to pray God's 
protection, God's blessing, God's healing. And so I want us all to pray together, to pray passionately, to pray in faith. And so would you please join me as we cry out for mercy from our God. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we come with confidence, for you have told us, Lord, that in that name we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And we can know, God, that you desire to hear from us, that we can cast our cares and our burdens upon you, and that we are to come in faith. We are not to come doubting, we are not to come wavering, but we are to come believing that you are good, that you are powerful, and that uh, you are able, Lord. And so we come to you, Lord, and we cry out for all that's going on in our country, all that's going on in our state. You know, this pandemic, it's been going for so long now, God, and there's just been so much devastation that has come from that, so much chaos, so much confusion, so much fallout. But now, Lord, on top of that, we have these fires, and people are losing their homes. We have these firefighters out here risking their lives for us day in and day out. And now the weather's reporting that there could be more lightning coming. And so, God, I'm just praying above all that you would have mercy on us, Lord, that you would allow the, the fires to, to, to go out, that you would send rain, that you would protect our firefighters and that you would assist them, God, and that they would be able to uh, fight back the flames and that the fires would go out, God. Would you please do that? Would you please have that mercy and that grace on us? And I pray for uh, the homes, God, of, of so many people that you would preserve, that you would protect and keep their property from being destroyed. Lord, I pray that there will be a total shift in the weather and that there wouldn't be any lightning to come. And if there is, Father, that it wouldn't uh, do any further damage or, or devastation. Lord, we're just calling upon you because... Praise you, God. There's no, there's no greater privilege than to be able to call on Almighty God and to know that you hear us, God, and that you will answer us according to your perfect will. So we come as a church family. We come as believers in Jesus, calling upon your name and crying out. And Lord, there's so much fear. There's so much hurt. God, there's so much anxiety about what's happening right now and about the future and the uncertainty of it all. I pray, Father, that you would pour out rest, that you would pour out joy, that you would pour out peace upon your people. I pray, Father, that you would use all of this for your glory ultimately, and that you would do an awesome work in the midst of it, for only you can do that, Father. And so we, we commit all of this to you. We cry out, God, from our hearts, please, Lord, oh, please have mercy on us and everyone who's being affected by all of these things. And we trust you, Lord, for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Today we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 8. Just an overview. I had intended on doing chapters 8 through 12, but I want to have mercy on you because I had nine pages of notes, and that's a lot. That's about twice what I would, would normally have. And so we're going to do chapter 8. Chapter 8 is glorious. And uh, there are three main points that are going to come out of this text today, and I'm very excited to share this with you. And in some ways, I am uh, a little fearful because this is some heavy stuff. It's glorious, but it's heavy. But I know that God is going to use it in our lives in amazing ways, and He's going to stir our love and our affection for Him in it. So, Father, I just ask your blessing upon the Word today for your glory in Jesus' name. 
So you'll recall last week, we, were, uh, we went Romans chapters 1 through 7, and I titled that Gospel Masterpiece Part 1, and, and today, same thing, Gospel Masterpiece Part 2, because truly that is what the book of Romans is. As I said, there's no other book like it. It's been said that it is the, uh, the jewel, the center jewel in the crown of the New Testament. And it just lays out for us systematically the gospel in a way that no other book of the Bible does. And it has made an impact on the world throughout history in ways that we can never truly calculate in the way that men and women have been impacted by this book, and God continues to use it to this day. So as I said, the first three chapters of this book outlines for us the, the radical condition of man's heart, that, that men and women, our hearts are depraved, that we are dead in trespass and sin, that we are separated from God, and that we are... Uh, rebels against God, enemies against God. That's not to say everybody is as bad as they can possibly be, you know, but the reality is, is that there's no one who isn't on some level affected and tainted by sin. In fact, every area of our life, no matter what it is, on some level is affected and tainted by sin, and that is the condition of man, and it's a terrible condition. It's a terrible state, and so that's the bad news, and so in comes the good news, that God justifies guilty sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. That is to say that he declares us innocent. It is done. It is fixed. You don't grow in it. You don't become less of that. You are what you are in Christ. You are declared innocent for good because of what Christ did at the cross through faith. Chapter 5, we talked about reconciliation. God not only declared us innocent, declared us righteous, but he brought us into peace with himself. We now have peace with God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have been reconciled to him. We are no longer enemies. He is now our loving Heavenly Father, and we are his children. Then chapters 6 and 7, we talked about the fact that we are growing in godliness. You know, our standing before God is fixed. It doesn't change. God will never love us more than he does now. He'll never love us less than he does now. That doesn't change. But our outward godliness, our Christ-likeness, that is a journey. We are ever growing in that until we stand before God one day in perfection. And so that is where we left off, chapters 1 through 7. Well, now as we move into chapter 8, the first thing we're going to see is that we are united with Christ. We have union with Him. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. Then, as we move farther into the chapter, we're going to see that we've been adopted by the Spirit. Not just saved, not just forgiven, but made children of God. And then lastly, we're going to see God's sovereignty, that God's in control of it all. God has been and will always be. From eternity past to eternity future, we are in his hand. It's all his doing. Nobody can stop it and nobody can snatch us out of his hand. Amen? Amen. And so that's where we're going today. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is union with Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
Forgive me, that was verse 1 and then verses 5 through 8. If you got tripped up there, that was my bad. <laughs> I meant to say that. So, the first thing that we see in verse 1 is that there is no guilty verdict to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. That's what that means. When a judge hands down a sentence of guilty, that is to be condemned by the judge. Well, there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. There is no guilt. Our sin has been paid for at the cross on Jesus Christ, and His righteousness has been given to us. Now, that is so good. I have always loved that verse because I'm really good at heaping guilt on myself. How about you? Do you ever feel guilt? You ever feel, you know, past regret? Well, you know what? That's not from the Lord, and you need to know that because the Bible clearly says that if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And so we're really good at heaping condemnation on ourselves. The enemy is all about heaping condemnation on us. Sometimes we do such a good job at it, the enemy doesn't even have to mess with us. He's just going to let us be because he doesn't want to get in the way of what we're already doing. But the reality is there is no guilt. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is great news because we are found in him. Because we are united with Christ. Because Christ is in us because of our union with him. Justin Taylor, uh, a guy, he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition. He, uh, he quotes a book by John Murray um, called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And he says this regarding Murray. He says that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. That is the center of it all, union with Christ. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. That is to say, it's not just one aspect of it. It underlies every aspect of redemption. That we are in Christ and that Christ is in us affects everything. Taylor goes on to point out that if we are united with Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. That is to say that we share in Christ's death. Christ died, we have died with him. The Bible says that we were buried with him in baptism because we are united with him. Christ has died, we have died with Christ. But we have also shared with him in his resurrection. We are resurrected with Christ. The Bible says that he rose again from the dead, and as we are united with him, we too have risen into the newness of life. We share with him in his ascension. Is this thing on? Okay, sorry. We share with him in his ascension as he has been raised, as he has gone up to the heavens, we have been raised with him. Goes on to say that we share with him in his heavenly session. That is to say that we sit with him in heavenly places so that our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? But the Bible says that we are hidden with Christ in God in heavenly places and we will share in his promised return. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. So all of this is ours because we share with Christ in union, because Christ is in us and we are in him. And that is such a glorious truth that only the Christian has. Only the believer of Christ has this. We are united with him in his death and in his life. Well, now, in verse 5, Paul would go on to make a distinction he would make a distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And that's an important distinction to make. 
you need to know where you stand in that because there is a difference. Paul says that there are two types of people. There are the fleshly-minded people and the spiritually-minded people. Now, it's important to understand the distinction here. Those who are in the flesh, the fleshly-minded person, they are outside of Christ. They have no part with Christ. They are still counted dead in their sin and separated from God because that can be confusing because sometimes as Christians, we, we talk about being in the flesh, right? When we, when we acted a certain way or responded roughly with somebody or got agitated, we may say, I was in the flesh, right? But that's not what Paul is saying here. There is the fleshly person and the spiritual person, and there's a very big distinction between the two. He says that the spiritually minded person, that person has life and peace with God. But the carnal person, the fleshly person, he says, is an enemy of God. That this person cannot please God. And you need to let that sink in. We talked about this in chapters 1 through 3. That that is, that is our position before God. We are separated from Him. We can do nothing good in God's eyes, ultimately. And here Paul says that this person is an enemy of God and that they cannot please God. You remember last week when I talked about the fact that there are people in our lives that seems like no matter what we do, we can't please them? Remember that? And I talked about how sweet it is when you're doing something for somebody and you know how thrilled they're going to be and how excited you get and how, what a good feeling that is and, and how we can have that with God. We can please God. God does delight in His children. Well, the reality is, is that if you are outside of Christ, if you are in the flesh, if you are not the spiritually minded person, you can't please God. No matter what we do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many quote-unquote good things you do, the Bible says we cannot please God. It's impossible. That is a hopeless and a helpless place to be, is it not? But verse 9, good news. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you... The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if the spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the flesh, the Bible says. You are alive in the spirit. You belong to Jesus Christ. That is the qualifier. He says you must have the Spirit of Christ. Notice that phrase, the Spirit of Christ. You must have the Spirit of Christ, otherwise what? You don't belong to Him, he says. But since we are His, though the body is dead, though our physical body is unredeemed, we are alive in the Spirit, and God gives us the ability to live righteous lives. And he says that it's from the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Guys, that is awesome. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave, the Holy Spirit, is alive in us. And here it says that same power gives us the ability to live righteously before God, to live God-honoring lives, because outside of this, we could not please God. We could not live in a way that was pleasing to God. But in Christ, through union with Him and the power that raised Christ from the dead alive in us, causes us to live lives that are pleasing to God. Isn't that wonderful? Now, because of our union with Christ, the Bible says that we're adopted. 
We are united with Christ and we are adopted into the family of God. And that brings us to the next point. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Adoption by the Spirit. All right. For as many of you as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Excuse me, is that verse 14? Sorry. Forgive me, guys. My, my notes are a little askew here today. Let me start over. Verse 14. For as many of us are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together so if you are in christ you are a child of god and that's exactly what john 1 12 says that for as many as believed in him he gave unto them the the right to be called children of god and so we are we are children of god and then he says this you did not receive the spirit again unto bondage what he's saying here the spirit of fear there was a time when we did have this fear of God. It was a, a fear of, it was a dreadful fear, a fear of torment, right? We were separated from God and we stood under God's judgment. But that has been taken away. We no longer have that spirit of fear. Instead, we have this spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So perfect love, the perfect love of Christ has done away with that fear. We no longer fear God as a judge. Now we are under God's love as a heavenly father. And it says here that we cry out to him, Abba, Father. You know what that means? Well, the, the word Abba, one, one commentator says this, an informal Aramaic term for the father, for father that conveys a sense of intimacy, like the English word daddy or papa. It connotes tenderness, dependence, and relationship free from fear or anxiety. It's like saying essentially that, that God now is our papa or our daddy. That's what that word means. If you go to, to Israel, and I've heard it said you go to a place where a lot of children are playing, you'll, you'll hear them when they're calling out to their dad. You'll hear that word, Abba, Abba, Abba. And that's exactly what it is. And so that's what God has given to us. That is who God is to us now. There is no fear of torment. There is no fear of judgment. That has been replaced with the spirit of adoption. And now we belong to him and he is our Abba. He is our, our, our dad, our daddy, our papa. And he says the spirit bears witness with our spirit. That means you know this in your heart. You know this. You're under God's love and you know it. This is real to you. It's alive to you. And you should have that assurance. The Bible says that we can and should have that assurance. John wrote to, in 1 John, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know this. You can know God like this. You can know God as your Father, and you can have that in your heart, that sense of peace, that sense of belonging, that sense of love that comes only from a loving Heavenly Father. And then he says, not only children, but heirs. Not only have we been made children, but we have been made heirs of God. That is to say that God adopted us with a purpose. God adopted us with the intention of giving something to us. 
And that was the purpose of adoption. So oftentimes in other cultures, uh, if there was a, a family fortune or something to be handed off, somebody had to be the recipient of it. Sometimes families didn't have a child to give the inheritance to. Or perhaps the child that they did have was not counted, counted able to, to bear such a burden. So a child would be adopted in order to receive the family inheritance. And I just say that to say we've been adopted with a purpose. God adopted us in order to give something glorious to us. Now just think about that, you know. God saved us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. And we didn't do anything to actually achieve it. God, by His grace, saved us. And then God gives us gifts to serve Him with that we didn't deserve. And then God gives us a reward at the end of it all that we didn't deserve. God did all of that for us by grace because He is our loving Heavenly Father. That is so good. God has been so good to us. And you know what? This, brothers and sisters, has been God's plan from eternity past. This has been God's plan in Christ Jesus for you from before time began, before foundation of the world was laid, which brings us to point number three. And this is God's sovereignty. This is where it's going to get interesting. You guys ready? I love this topic. I love to talk about how God is in control, how God is sovereign. I'll talk about what that means in a moment. And this is meant to stir our affections for God and to cause us to cry out in thanksgiving when we realize just how in control God is and just how much God has actually done and how little we have actually done and how safe we actually are in God's hands. That should be the effect when we understand God's control, God's sovereignty. And let me just say that there is a huge debate that has been going on in the church for 1,700 years about some of the things that we're going to be talking about right now and, and next week especially. And people stand on very different ends of the spectrum on this, and people can get really heated about it to be sure. And I just want you to know that if you're here, if you're listening to me, or you're at home, or you go to this church, that you're free to do that. You, you can believe one end of the spectrum. You can believe the other end of the spectrum. Um, I'll talk more about that as we go, but I just want you to know that, that this is a glorious thing, God's sovereignty. And I just want to be true to the scriptures as best I understand them. It's my job before God to do that. And so um, let's, let's dig into this. I've titled this portion of chapter 8, Chosen and Kept by God. You've been chosen. God chose you. And God is going to keep you to the very end. And nothing can stop that. So when I talk about God's sovereignty, let's just define our terms here. It simply means supreme power and authority. All things are under God's control. And he has the absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. You understand that, right? God can do whatever God wants to do because he is God. But we know that God is good and all that God does is good and is right. And so we can rest in that. Imagine if we had a sovereign, all-powerful God that wasn't good. That would be scary, would it not? But we have an all-powerful, sovereign God who is totally good, totally right. 
in all of his ways. And so we rest in God's power. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth and in the seas and all the deep places. God does everything he wants to do. And the heavens above on the earth and the sea below, there is nothing beyond his control. So first, I want to look at the fact that we are, by God's sovereign grace, chosen in him. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So notice with me the first thing here, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for the called, those who are called according to his purpose. I love the way the, the New American Standard translates this. I think it's a little better. It says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called. God causes all things to work together. I, I want you to understand that about God. God is not reactionary. Uh, we react, right? We react. And a lot of times we don't react well. We don't react right in certain situations. But God is the cause. God is always initiating because God is in control and God has a plan. And so sometimes you'll hear us talk about the word providence. Have you ever heard that word before? The providence of God? That's a beautiful word. That is to say that God is able to cause people, situations, and scenarios to fall into place in such a way to bring about his desired end. God works things together for good. God causes things to fall into place in such a way that it brings his desired will about. And to us, so often it seems like it just so happened, does it not? So often in our own lives, things are just falling into place in a very natural and normal way, but unbeknownst to us, God is moving supernaturally. God is doing something awesome, something so much bigger than us, bigger than we could ever know. You know, I've seen God's providence in my own life. We've seen God's providence in our church. And I know that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've seen it in your own life. You know, the last time that we had a, a fire here in Napa, there was, a, there was a, a family in our church and they lost their home. And you know, that was a tragic thing. There's no, no, uh, no way around that. Um, they lost a lot and it hurt them deeply. But, you know, we got to see the body of Christ surround them in a way that you don't often get to see. And God blessed them in such a way. It gave the people of Christ an opportunity to be a blessing. It gave these people an opportunity to be surrounded by the, the love and the arms of Christ, as it were. God totally restored them. And in the midst of it all, they got to see God do something that not everyone gets to see. And the body of Christ got to see something that not everybody gets to see. And the body of Christ got to be a part of that. And so you look at that and you think God did something so awesome and so big in, that, in their lives, but in the beginning all it looked like was pure tragedy, devastation, and loss. But you know, God's so much bigger than that. And God is able to take the worst situations and turn them around for good to get glory out of it 
and to bring about good in people's lives. Nothing is wasted with God. Did you know that? Not a single thing, not a single tear, not a single hurt, not a single loss, not a single failure. Nothing is wasted with God. He is able to use it and to redeem it. You know, we see this in the book of Ruth. If you know your Bible, the book of Ruth, their family uh, underwent great tragedy. And uh, I think it was Naomi, right? Ruth's mother-in-law. Uh, her, her two sons and her husband died, and she had two daughter-in-laws. And, and one daughter-in-law decided to stay there in the land, but Ruth and Naomi went to Bethlehem. They lost everything. And they went to Bethlehem, and uh, Ruth was going out into the field to, to work and to try to find some food just so they could eat that day. And then it says this in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Ruth, Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz just happened just happened that way and there she met this man who was really a picture of christ as the great redeemer the kinsman redeemer and he took uh ruth to be his wife and their whole story was turned around in a marvelous way but what we know really was going on here is that whose lineage were they in jesus that's right this was the lineage of christ god was doing something so much bigger than they could ever know God provided for them in a very tragic and devastating time. God brought them through it faithfully. God restored their lives. And at the same time, God was doing something so much bigger than they could ever know. And that's what God is doing, folks, in ways that we can never truly appreciate or understand. I mean, you look at Joseph in Genesis. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He went into imprisonment. And for years, it just seemed like things went so badly for him. When it couldn't get any worse, guess what? It got worse. And I don't want to minimize in any way the suffering that he went through, but God restored him. God took what those brothers meant for evil and did what? He turned it around for good. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph came to a prominent place of power there in Egypt. Joseph's family was restored. And he was able to say to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That is the sovereignty, that is the providence of our God. Not to minimize the pain, not to minimize the suffering, not to minimize all the time that it took to get from point A to B, but God was in it. And God didn't waste any of it. And God was able to bring great glory to himself and blessing to the people. And we need to have that kind of confidence, folks. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we call Father. Is God your Father? Do you have this hope? Do you have this promise? You can. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, be forgiven, receive God's blessing, receive God's promises, that is available to us all. And so you need to know that about God. And so Paul is now going to take this this concept of sovereignty this concept of providence and he's going to put it into the context of salvation how god has been sovereign even in our salvation even in choosing us unto himself from before time began and so we saw that in verse 29 where it says for whom he foreknew he also be uh predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that's god's plan in our lives ultimately is to see us be conformed to the image of christ that's what god is about 
That's what God is doing. God foreknew you, he predestined you, and then we're told in verse 30 that those whom he knew, those whom he predestined, he also called them. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. There's five things there, five things that happen in succession. And this is what is sometimes called the golden chain of redemption. There in this text, the golden chain of redemption. There's a a Latin phrase for the ordo salutis, and it means the order of salvation. The order of salvation. And so, whom God foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. Now, I want you to notice something with me. God foreknew from eternity past you. He foreknew you before time began. And then we're told that in the end of this chain that you will be glorified. When does that happen? That happens in eternity future when we're standing before God, right? So from eternity past to eternity future, this is all God. God does it all. From eternity past to eternity future, God is in control. Amen? And so I just want to look at this word foreknew because there's a lot of different takes on what this word means, foreknow. And uh, I'd like to to speak to that. So when we hear foreknow, it kind of sounds like it's saying previous knowledge. God knew about something beforehand, right? And that makes sense why people would think that. But that's not what this word means. It does not mean prior knowledge. It literally means like a prior choosing. Because this word does not speak of like an intellectual knowledge, something that we know about. It's kind of an experiential relationship. It's kind of a a relational interaction. It's not just some kind of intellectual knowledge or understanding. And so it's as if God chose or befriended someone before they even existed. So the word, it's prognosco, and it's a verb. It's not something that God had. It's not something that God possessed, some kind of knowledge. It's something that God literally exercised. It's something that God did. God foreknew you. The idea here is to befriend or to be acquainted with someone in a familiar way ahead of time or before meeting, implying an exclusivity of choice. So it's befriending someone before you even know them, essentially. And God did do this, right? We think about uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1. He says, before I knew you, before, before you were formed in your mother's womb, what? I knew you. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I called you. I ordained you to be a prophet. What about Jacob? Before he was even born, remember, he had already determined that Jacob would be the one to receive the family blessing, even though he was born second, right? Esau was born first. But God determined that Jacob would receive the blessing, for he says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And so God, and we'll talk about that next week, but God had already determined that the blessing was going to fall on Jacob before Jacob was born, even though Jacob was second in line to receive the family blessing. And so this, this foreknowledge, it's almost like saying forechosen or foreloved. It's something that God has done before we were even born. God already knew who you were. He knew everything about you. He knew every hair on your head, every worry that you would ever have, every tear that you would ever cry, every failure that you would ever have, and he chose you. God loved you. 
all the way from eternity past. And that's what the word foreknowledge means. God chose us first. God chose you first. Now, people, people don't like that for some reason. People, people say, no, I, I, I had to have a choice in the matter. What they would say is actually this was God looking ahead into time or God already knew that I would choose him, so he chose me. That's, that's really a very common view. You may even, may even think that, and a lot of people do, that somehow God knew you would choose him, so he chose you first. That's what they would say. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But the reality is that's just not what the Bible indicates, that God chose us, and they say that it's not sincere love. It's not sincere love if I didn't have a choice, if I didn't choose God first. And that makes sense, right? That's a logical argument that can be made, and a lot of people do. But, you know, the Bible indicates, folks, that we would not choose God. Right? Romans 1 through 3. What did it say about the condition of mankind? We would never choose God. We don't, we, we're not good. We're not, we weren't good. And then we're not capable of being good. And then what did it say in Romans 8? No one can please God. No one in the flesh. No one in the flesh can please God. That is the condition of humanity. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says we're dead. Dead in our trespass and sin. You know, some people have said, well, you know, salvation is kind of like I'm drowning in a lake and, and Jesus throws me a life preserver, but I have to take it. You have to choose to take that. Have you ever heard that before? Heard that analogy? Well, I've also heard it said that probably the more accurate way of understanding that is that you are dead in the bottom of the lake and Jesus sw swam down to the bottom of the lake and brought you up and brought you to life. Honestly, folks, that is what the, I believe the, the Bible says about our condition outside of God. The Bible says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. Brothers, sisters, God chose you. God loves you. God had you in mind and in heart, as I've said a million times, and I'm going to keep saying it, before you were born, before the world began. God had you in his heart. You know, the Bible teaches that even our, our faith, even our faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know the verse as well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God. What? Unless you would boast, unless you would brag about it. It's the gift of God. Even the faith that we have is a gift from God because Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know that verse? Without faith, and I love that verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but we know God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him by faith. So God is pleased by faith, right? But what did Romans 8 say? That you can't please God in the flesh. Well, how are you going to have faith? How are you going to please God if the Bible says that you can't please God in the flesh? You can't have faith. You won't have faith. Even God gives us the faith to believe in him, and he is pleased when we do. So look, guys, the Bible teaches that we love God because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19. We love God, why? Because he first loved us. Who initiated this whole thing? God did. That was the spark. That was the spark. It was God. God initiated it. You know, 
does responding to God's initiating love make our love any less valid? Because God chose you first and you responded to his love, does that make your love for him any less valid? Absolutely not. I think that it fosters greater love and humble gratitude when we recognize that God in his infinite grace and mercy sought us out in love and did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he foreknew us, that he foreknew us and that he predestined us. You know, some people just insist on having something to bring to the table when it comes to their salvation. They have to make a contribution on some level. They can't do otherwise. So look, I have good news. You have made a contribution. Jonathan Edwards says the only thing that you've contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. (laughs) There you have it. You've made a contribution. Feel better? And God in his infinite grace and mercy sought you out. He came running after you. Just think, God saw us, he knew us, he loved us, and he chose us when we were at our worst. When we were at our worst, God knew everything about us. And still, God chose us in him. Not because we would choose him, because I think the Bible makes it clear that nobody would choose him. I mean, think about Jeremiah. When God came to Jeremiah and said, I, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. I chose you. What did Jeremiah say? Let's do it, God. I'm ready. No, that's not what he said. He said, no, Lord, not me. I can't do that. All the reasons why he can't do that. So Jeremiah would not have chosen to do that. What about Jacob? You know, the name Jacob means heel catcher. It's like a con artist or a crook, you know, trying to grab somebody who's ahead of you and pull them back so you can get ahead. That was Jacob. God chose Jacob. Jacob would not have chosen God. I mean, and neither did Esau, for that matter. But I'll talk about that next week. So that's just the reality of it. God chose us because such is his amazing love. That is the love of God, the predestining love of God, the choosing love of God. It says, for whom he foreknew, he predestined. For whom God foreknew, he predestined. The word predestined, it's a scary word. People don't like it sometimes, right? But the the word it's a it, it literally is prohorizo. Prohorizo, and that is to say before the uh the horizon or beyond the horizon. And the idea is is that the when you look at the horizon as far as the eye can see, that's the idea, right? God had already pre, uh, predetermined the boundaries. He had marked out the boundaries and the borders of the horizon. That's the idea. So God knew you. God loved you. God chose you. And God determined that it would be so. God marked out the borders and the limitations beforehand. He predestined it to be so. And this is, a nat- you know, look, we all, you've, I'm sure you've heard the, the, the destiny. This is my destiny. I mean, people have that in them. They understand that there's a destiny that God has determined, that God has marked out for each and every one of us. And that's the idea of the word. So whom God foreknew, whom God foreloved, whom God forechose, he predestined, he determined it to be so. And then it says, whom he predestined, he called. Brothers and sisters, when God 
knew you and God chose you, God calls you. God is going to have you for himself. God has determined that we would be the church and that we would be the bride of Christ. And God is going to draw us in. John chapter 6 verse 35 says this, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus said that anybody who comes to him and eats and drinks will never hunger or thirst again. And he says that anyone who comes to me, they come because the Father has drawn you. The Father brought you in. And that's the truth of it, folks. The Bible teaches that God does draw us to himself, that God calls us. That's another word for this. God has chosen you and God will have you. God will bring you in. God will draw you to himself. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. These are some of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. This really is the gospel right here. Verse 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we were, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving lust and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hating each other. That was us outside of Christ. But God, when the kindness and the goodness of God appeared towards us, not by our own works, not by our own righteousness, not by anything we could do or anything that we deserved, but according to his mercy, he regenerated us. That is to say, he brought us from death into life. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Our eyes were opened. We were born again. The Spirit of God came within us, and we were united with Christ. God did that in mercy at just the right time. When we were living lives of deception and, and lust and serving ourselves and hating each other, God, in His grace and kindness, came in, and He saved us. We were born again by His Spirit. That he poured out abundantly on us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says this, And having been justified by his grace, we became heirs. That's what God did. God had determined he was going to do that. He knew you, chose you, predestined you. He turned the lights on. He filled your heart with the Holy Spirit. He regenerated you. He justified you. And the Bible says that he's going to glorify you. He's going to glorify us. God is going to see it to the very end, folks. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can stop that. God is going to see it to the very end. You will stand in glory. As uncertain as everything in this world is, there's one thing that will not fail. There is one thing that will not 
change. And that is God is faithful, God is able, and God will see you to the very end. Amen? And that brings us to verse 31. This is the the last part of chapter 8, and this is our last point. We are kept by God. We're kept by God. We're chosen by God, and we are kept by God. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God has done all of this, if God has done all of this by his own sovereign will, who can stop it? That's the question. Who can stop it? I'll give you the answer. Nobody. Nobody can stop it. God gave his own son to secure salvation for his people. I mean, God gave his son, folks, for, for me and for you. Who can, who can stop that? Who can change it? Who can take it away? Why would God withhold anything from his people now? If God was willing to do that, if God was willing to give his son for you and for me, how would he not freely give us all things, Paul says. I love that verse. If God went that far, you think he's going to stop short now? You think God's going to hold back now? You think God's going to take it back now? You think after God did all of this from eternity past and paid such a high price that he's just going to take it back now or he's just going to let you fall away? God paid such a high price, and some people think that God would take it back for the smallest infraction. You know, I knew a brother in Tennessee, an elderly man. He used to call on me to come help him bail hay after work in the afternoon. Man, if you've ever done hay work, golly, it is, that's hard work. That's no joke. But I remember sitting on his front porch in the, in the foothills of Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains. He was telling me, he said, you know, if you... Uh, he gave me a hypothetical. He's like, if you were to, you know, get in a wreck or something and say a cuss word, you better ask forgiveness right then because if you died, you'd go to hell. And I just thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So you're saved by grace, but you're kept by your own ability to say, say ask forgiveness fast enough every time you, you sin. It's like, how many times do you got to ask forgiveness? 15 times a day? 100 times a day? That's, that is works-based salvation, but you know, a lot of Christians live like this. God did all of this, and now it's on me to keep it up. It's on me to keep it, keep it good. And that, nothing could be farther from the truth. Verse 33, it says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who can bring a charge of guilt against God's people? God justified you. Who can call you guilty? If God said you are clean, if God said you are innocent, if God said you are righteousness, who can come against that? Who can change that? Who can say otherwise? As I said before, we certainly have an enemy who, who loves to accuse us, and to cause us to maybe think otherwise or feel otherwise, or maybe we cast guilt and blame and shame on ourselves. But the reality is, who can bring a charge against God's elect? For God himself has justified us. And it says, it is Christ who died. Christ himself died for you. 
Christ himself died for your sins. How can anyone or you, even yourself, say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've said. You don't know the failures that I've had. Man, Christ died for you. No greater price could ever be paid in all of human history, past, present, future. And you can never out the cross. You can never out the grace of God and His Son, Jesus. And we're told that Christ Himself is even at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Did you know that? Christ, even here and now in heaven, is interceding on our behalf before the Father. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the bottom line, folks. The bottom line of God's sovereignty, nothing can separate what he has joined. Nothing can stop God's hand. God is mighty to save. He is free to save. And God has chosen to save. And nothing can stop him from saving, not even you. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. For Christ himself will certainly never leave us. Has he not said so? He would never leave us nor forsake us. He would never fail us, nor would he ever lose us. Christ will never leave you. Christ will never lose you. You need to know that. No one can snatch us out of his hands. You know that verse? No one can snatch us out of his hands. You know, I was telling Pastor Dan the other day, I don't know why I've always had this picture in my mind of like, uh, you remember that old, that old uh, movie, uh, Kung Fu? He's like, snatch the pebble out of my hand, grasshopper, right? And it's like, whoosh, trying to get the pebble. No, I mean, the picture here is that we are a sheep and we are in the arms of the good shepherd and no wolf is ever going to be able to take that sheep from the arms of the good shepherd ever, ever, ever. Nothing is ever going to be able to snatch you out of the loving hands of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, not even our own trials, not even our own struggles, not even our own doubt, not even our own worry, not even our own sin, not even our own wavering, not even our own wandering. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing is ever going to separate us from him, snatch us out of his hands, as it were. Nothing can sever us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You need to know that. Do you know that? Because this was God's doing all along, from eternity past to eternity future. It's all God's doing. And I praise God for that. I love God so much more for that. I rest because of that. Our God is a big God. Our God is in control. And I, I praise God for that. We serve an awesome God, a big God. He's not a God that says, oops. He's not a God who says, I didn't see that coming. He's not a God who says, I don't know what to do now. He is the God who is sovereign over all human history. The hearts of the kings are like, it's like a river that God turns. God is absolutely in control of it all. So just kind of in closing here, you know, as I said, there's been a lot of uh, calamity happening. I mean, 2020 has been a year like no other, has it not? 
A lot of uncertainty. And the reality is it may continue. It could get worse. You know, there's been concerns about career. What am I going to do? My job, my business, the economy. What are we going to do? Concerns about health. Am I going to get sick? Is my family going to get sick? Or perhaps we have, have or have family who have been sick. Um, concerns about our homes now with this fire. What do we do? What happens if our, our home burns or we lose all of our stuff? Concerned about even our own lives or the lives of those that we love. You know, uh, the reality is those are legitimate concerns and fears, to be sure. But, you know, we have, we have what the world doesn't have, folks. We have the certainty of God. We have the certainty of the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we are at peace with God and God is our loving, loving Heavenly Father. We have the certainty that God is able to cause all things to work together for good, come what may. Whatever happens... We have the hope of God that he is able to redeem it. He's able to turn it around. He's able to use it for good in us and around us. We have that hope. We have the certainty that God has chosen us from the foundation of the world and he's going to see it through to the end and that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All of that is ours. That is our anchor, folks. That is our hope. That is the truth to which we cling when everything else around us fails or may fail, one thing is sure, and that is our God. He is an ever-present help in time of need. He is our rock. He is our strong tower. He is the refuge that we run to. He will never fail. He will never leave. He will never forsake. And we are found in Him in Christ. Nothing can ever stop that. Amen? So you need, we need to run to Him always. Let's, let our hope ever be in Him. Let our trust ever be in Him. Let our certainty ever be in Him. And so that's my prayer for us in this time. And so would you join with me in prayer as we close? Father God, we, we trust You. We, we call upon the name above all other names, the name of Jesus. Jesus, we need You. We trust You. We look to You. Thank you that you loved us so much, Lord, and that you saved us when we were, when there was nothing about us that, that would appear redeemable or, or worth saving. Lord, you saw worth. You saw value. You saw a glorious church, a spotless church without any blemish that you would present, Lord, unto yourself, faultless. And we praise you for that, God. And Lord, may you be our anchor. May you be the rock. Lord, may we find our hope and our peace and our, our rest in you, God. There's no other place, Lord, where we should place our trust. We should not have peace in this world. Lord, you alone are our peace. You are, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And you give the peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that this world knows nothing of. And so, God, would you pour your Spirit out upon us afresh. God, fill us with your goodness and your kindness. God, restore us to the joy of our salvation. God, may we be strong in you. When we are weak, you are strong. Your strength is perfected in our weakness. God, would you show yourself strong on our behalf?
for your glory. And I pray again for mercy for our, our town and for California and for the fires and for everything that's happening, Lord, the pandemic. God, have mercy for your own name's sake because you are a loving God and a gracious God, a saving God, a healing God, a restoring God. And so would you do that, Father, for your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys, love you, and we will see you Wednesday night for Samuel chapter 4. God bless. If there's any way that we can serve you, please don't hesitate to call the church or to reach out to one of the pastors. We love you.